So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them to the 110th Psalm. Psalm 110 is known as a royal psalm. It's also called, a, another word for that is a messianic psalm because it gives us a picture of the Messiah, of Jesus. It's also, I don't know if you know this or not, but Psalm 110 is the most often quoted Old Testament chapter that is quoted in the New Testament. No other chapter, whether it's Psalms or anywhere else, is quoted more in the New Testament than Psalm 110. Jesus quotes from it. All of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all quote from it. Paul quotes from it. Peter quotes from it. The writer of Hebrews quotes from it often. In fact, the only New Testament writers that don't quote from Psalm 110 are James and John. And certainly in John's Revelation, we see many allusions that clearly point us back to some of what we see in Psalm 110, this royal psalm. The point is that the New Testament's reliance on Psalm 110 tells us a couple of things. First of all, there must be something here for the New Testament saint, the believer in the New Testament church, to embrace. But secondly, that we must use the New Testament to filter and understand our interpretation of what Psalm 10 is telling us. Because there's so much there. Even Jesus and the apostles have so much to say about Psalm 110. And so we will be flipping it back and forth a lot between the New Testament and Psalm 110 this morning. So let's read the psalm and then seek to unpack it together. Church, this is the very breath of God. Psalm 110. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the privilege it's been this morning to gather with the saints, to gather with your people in humble submission to you as our King, to sing and praise you as our sovereign God, and now to turn to your word. Father, we, we express thankfulness and gratitude to you for this book. We thank you, Father, for the inspiration of your spirit. We thank you, Father, for how you have overseen this book throughout the ages so that we can trust that what we hold in our hands is your very word. And because it is your word, Father, we don't read it like any other book. We hold it up 
among the gathering of the saints in thankfulness and in complete dependence that, Father, you would speak to us from this word. Father, prevent me in my flesh from getting in the way of what you would say to your people this morning. May your word speak clearly to our souls. Would you use your word to equip and encourage the saints and to call sinners to repentance in Jesus Christ? Magnify yourself from your word, Father, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 110. We note first, before verse 1, the superscription, a psalm of David. As we've noted before, these superscriptions are part of the inspired word of God. They weren't added later by the translators. If you have an ESV or some other translation that has a title like sit at my right hand is in the ESV. It has that as a title for Psalm 110. That was added by the translators, but this superscription was not. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that is part of the inspired, it's part of the original manuscripts. Not all psalms have a superscription, but those that do, it tells us something about the psalm. And in this particular instance, this superscription tells us that this is a psalm, literally a song, a song of David, that is King David. And knowing that King David wrote this gives us particular insight into this particular song, additional insight into this particular song, because what we have here is a king who is speaking about and singing about another king. He says in verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, in our copies of the English translation of the Bible, more than likely that first Lord in your uh, written text there is going to be capitalized. And that's because that is the personal name of God. That's the tetragrammaton. The, in Latin, literally the four letters. Y-H-W-H. Before the, the, the scribes began the Hebrew vowel pointing, it was only four consonants. Y-H-W-H. In Hebrew, yod Hey vav Hey. It is the personal covenant name of God revealed by God to Moses in the burning bush. This is Yahweh. Whenever we see the, the word Lord capitalized in the Old Testament scriptures, we should think of this as referring to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, and so forth. Isaac and Jacob. That second Lord, though, is not capitalized in verse 1. That's because it is not the Tetragrammaton. Instead, it is the Hebrew word Adonai. And Adonai is also translated Lord. Jesus himself translates this as Lord in the New Testament. And, and so that word, while sometimes it does refer to Yahweh, it doesn't always refer to, to, to Yahweh. It, it simply means my my. Lord, my master, my king, my ruler. And so understand what's being said here in verse 1. David, who is 
a king. He is an earthly human king. He's singing a song. And he sings about Yahweh, Lord, who is saying something to his, that is David's Lord, David's ruler, David's master, David's king. And so who is David's king? Friend, this is none other than the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is Jesus. David's Lord, David's king here, is the Christ, the promised Messiah. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Yahweh made a promise, made a covenant with David through the prophet Samuel, and he said this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That was a promise that there would always be a king on David's throne in perpetuity. And that there would come one from David's lineage who would reign as king forever. Now the most compelling evidence here that this uh, Lord that is not capitalized in Psalm 110. The most compelling evidence that this is a reference to Messiah is that Jesus himself interprets it this way. All of the synoptic gospel writers write of this story, but we're going to read it from Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41, it says this. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Now, why did they answer that way? Well, because that was the promise. That was the promise that someone from David's line, that one of his sons from his family would be the Christ, the Messiah who would redeem his people one day. And note that Jesus doesn't correct them here because they're right. It was foretold that the Christ would be the son of David. Going on in verse 43, he said to them then, Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, and then he quotes from Psalm 110 here. Here's verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus goes on. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Several things for us to note here about this. First, that the Christ is the son of David. From Jesus' own words, the Christ is the son of David. He confirms that. Secondly, I think it's interesting to note that when Jesus quotes here from Psalm 110, says that, that David says this in the spirit, note that. He, say, he says, why then does David say in the spirit? And then he quotes from Psalm 110 verse 1. When, he's, when he says that, when Jesus says that David is speaking in the Spirit, he's explicitly confirming that when David wrote Psalm 110, he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that because it's in God's Word, but it's super cool when God's Word confirms that about itself. But thirdly, and most importantly for our discussion here, when Jesus says there in verse 43 of Matthew 22, 
How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, and then he quotes from Psalm 10, verse 1, he's telling us unequivocally that the uncapitalized Lord in Psalm 110, verse 1, is in fact the Christ. And so that means for us that Psalm 110 is about Jesus. It's a psalm about the Christ. David here is not talking about his son Solomon or any of the other human authors that come after him in his lineage. He's talking about his Lord, his Messiah, his King, our Jesus And so this is going to dramatically change how we understand Psalm 110 and how we bring application to our own lives from it. So this is a picture of King Jesus from another king, from King David. And King David in this psalm gives us three pictures of Jesus. He gives us a picture of Jesus as divine king, as forever priest, and as righteous judge. And we'll look at all three of those. First of all, we see Jesus here as a divine king. David in this psalm is, at least in verse 1, he's overhearing a conversation between Yahweh and his son, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And Yahweh says to Christ, he says to Jesus in verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool the words right and hand are found together in the old testament over 130 times and nearly half of those they're found in reference to the right hand of god the right hand alludes to one's strength and one's power and authority even and when referring to god it refers to his ultimate power his omnipotence And his supreme authority to reign over the universe. So when Yahweh tells Jesus, sit at my right hand, this tells us that Jesus is God's anointed king. The New Testament, as we know, is replete with references all over the place to that of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Just go on a a quick tour of me through various parts of the New Testament as we see this. Mark 16, verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 1 Peter 3, verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, that is Christ. Hebrews 1 verse 3, he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And then Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, every time we see a reference in the New Testament to Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of God, it is a reference back to Psalm 110, verse 1. That's where it comes from. Friend, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God at this very moment because Jesus is king. Jesus is king. That phrase in verse 1, until I make your enemies your footstool, is an ancient symbol of victory. That of the king with his foot on the head of his enemies, on the neck of his enemies, until I make your enemies your footstool. So after this oracle from Yahweh to the Messiah in verse 1, in verses 2 and 3, David then expounds on the kingship of Messiah. He says in verse 2, the Lord, again, that's capitalized, see that? So this is Yahweh. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, that is, the Messiah's, Jesus's mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. The king's scepter was symbolic of his authority and his right to rule and his sovereignty. His, it, was, it ceremonially represented his right to rule and his reign. We recall what Jacob said on his deathbed, the patriarch, as he's pronouncing blessings on his many sons. He says to Judah in Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Remember, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? It is Jesus. And so Jacob, the patriarch, pronounces to his son Judah, to the tribe, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That which God promised to Jacob has been fulfilled in Jesus because Jesus is the Christ and he is the king. And the subjects of this king in verse 3 we see do not need to be forced into obedience. They don't need to be coerced into serving this king. They are willful and willing subjects. Verse 3, your people, again he's talking to the king here, the, the Messiah, so this is the king's people, the Messiah's people. This is Jesus' people. This is us, church. This is the church. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. That is, on the day that you lead your forces, they will offer themselves freely in holy garments. And I see there a reference to our garments of righteousness. Friends, this is the church dressed not in the stained garments of our own filthy rags of righteousness, but arrayed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, that righteousness that is imputed to us by faith in Jesus. This is the church robed in the clean white linens of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, willingly and freely offering themselves as a sacrifice to serve this king. I see an allusion to this in Paul's exhortation back in Romans 12, verse 1, where he says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We, too, as God's subjects, as the subjects of this king, 
do the same. Offer ourselves willingly and freely as his subjects to serve him as a sacrifice. James Montgomery Boyce notes about this passage that there are no mercenaries in this battle. He says, no slaves are pressed into the ranks of Jesus' soldiers. This army is composed entirely of volunteers. And then we have there at the end of verse 3, this somewhat strange and poetic and figurative language from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours, meaning in essence from the beginning of your youth to the end of your days, speaking there of King Jesus, the dew of your youth will be yours. We know that the dew comes out in the morning, but it's not there long. As soon as the sun comes up, especially in our climate, it begins to dry up and evaporate. The dew isn't there for long. But the dew of Jesus' youth will be his forever. He will never grow old. He will never tire. He will never grow weary. He will never lose a single ounce of his vitality and freshness and strength. Yes, he walked on the earth over 2,000 years ago. Yes, that means that he is quite old age-wise in human years. But he will come again in blinding glory and overwhelming power because Jesus is king. He is king. And just as King David referred to him as my Lord, my master, my ruler, my king. If King David himself lived in humble submission to this king, to whom the Old Testament saints looked forward to, so too must we who look back to his first coming and long for his second coming. So the application to David's song in this respect that Christ is king, our application to this must be that we too must learn to live in humble submission to this king, to submit to him as our king. We like to think of Jesus as our rescuer, our savior, our Redeemer and our friend, even our co-heir, and he is, but he is also king. He's king. And friend, I, I, you know, I, I know you, you might think that, man, can we get to something a little bit more relevant to our lives? Friend, there's nothing more relevant to your life. You have a king this morning. You have a king. The, the, the government that we live under is not a, mo a monarchy, and so uh, we might have a difficulty um, having a frame of reference for, for what this means and what it, what it means to live under a monarchy. Our government is that of a representative form of democracy. And in our form of government, we have a vote and we have a voice. The government is of the people, by the people, and supposed to be for the people. And so the ruling authorities with our form of government, ultimately answer to us. But that is not so in a monarchy. In a monarchy, the king is king. It's not a democracy. He doesn't need our vote. And he doesn't check with us for permission. 
And so given our American love of independence and liberty and, and limited and accountable government, we might in our flesh bristle at the thought of a supreme rule that, that doesn't check with us first and doesn't, is not in any way accountable to us in the least. But friend, that is the kingship of Jesus and David, the king here in a human and earthly sense, he humbly exalts and he humbly submits to this coming king. And in response, so should we. We should yield to this king. We should humble ourselves before this king and submit to this king. And we as the people of this, as the subjects of this king in verse 3, we ought to willingly, freely offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to serve this king in whatever way he so decrees. He reigns and he rules, not us. So I think this begs the question for us, do we live like Jesus is king? We can sing it, we can recite it, but do we live like that? Do we live as if Jesus is king right now? Every moment of every day. And if not, what would it look like for us to do so? What would we do with our time? How would we deploy our gifts, our abilities? Where would we invest our treasures and talents if we were to live as if Jesus were our king every moment of every day would we busy ourselves with our little kingdoms or would we busy ourselves with his kingdom would we squirrel away and work simply to save for our retirement or would we invest in the advancement of the gospel to the nations? I'm not at all saying that saving retirement is wrong and bad. That's good and wise. I have my own 401k. But friends, the American ideal of simply working 40 plus years solely for the purpose to live the last 20 plus years, just focus on ourselves, is not a biblical ideal. Instead, why can't we consider retirement to be our opportunity to go full time with Jesus? Serving others, serving the church, sharing the gospel, helping others, ministering to the body. So ask yourself, friend, am I engaging in my mission or in the king's mission? Jesus is our king. He's not just David's king. He's ours. The question is, am I living in humble and willful submission to him as king? So David presents the Messiah as king, but secondly, he also presents him as a forever priest. Look at verse 4. David goes on and says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So in verse 1, Yahweh speaks. Here, Yahweh swears. This word is referring to the swearing of an oath. And so what is the oath? That is sworn here. He's, he swears an oath to the Messiah, to Christ, that you are a priest forever after the order of 
Melchizedek. Who is this Melchizedek? We first hear about him back in Genesis chapter 14. After Father Abraham uh, defeats the coalition of armies from the north, he is met by this strange and mysterious character known as Melchizedek. And we pick up the story in Genesis 14, beginning in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, that is, he blessed Abram. And he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So, several things that we learn here about Melchizedek. First of all, he was a king of he was the king of Salem. And most Bible scholars see there a reference, a very early and ancient reference to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That's what that is. It's the city of peace. He's the king of that city. But he's also a priest. He's, he's priest of God most high. So he's a king, but he's also a priest. That was unheard of. You didn't have kings who were also priests. So that was very strange. And what does he do? He serves bread and wine to Abraham. Don't miss there the allusion to the Lord's Supper. That which Jesus serves to us as his followers, Melchizedek serves to Abraham. He also blesses Abraham and prays for him. After all, that's what a priest does. He intercedes on behalf of others before God. And then what does Abraham do in response? He gives him a tenth, literally in Hebrew, a tithe of everything. He gives a tithe to Melchizedek. That which we give to Jesus, Abraham gives to Melchizedek. It is unmistakable here that this Melchizedek character in Genesis 14 is a prefiguring of Christ. He was a real king, a real man who was a king of Salem, but he was a foreshadowing of the priest king who was going to come. And we know that that is the case because David now tells us explicitly in Psalm 110 that Yahweh swore an oath to this Lord who we've already identified as the Christ. He swears an oath to the Christ that he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The, the writer of the book of Hebrews has more to say about Melchizedek than any other biblical writer. In fact, he quotes explicitly from Psalm 110 verse 4 here four different times. Once in Hebrews 5, once in Hebrews 6, and twice in Hebrews 7. But it's in that seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews where he goes into tremendous detail about the priesthood of Melchizedek and then consequently what that means about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now we don't have time to go into all of that detail back in Hebrews 7, although that would be time well spent. I would commend that study of Hebrews 7 to you on your own time. But in a nutshell, what we learn is that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the Levitical priesthood. 
Even though Levitical priesthood is greater in number and more well-known, we learn from Hebrews chapter 7 that the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to that of the Levites. It was eternal as opposed to being temporal. It was instituted by an oath from God, not by birth, not simply by birth. And while the Levitical priesthood was incomplete and required multiple sacrifices year after year after year, at least with the second order of the Melchizedekian priesthood in Jesus Christ, that priesthood is complete because it offers a once-for-all sacrifice. Tyler talked a lot about the chiastic structure of um, uh, the book of Haggai. And we see that same chiastic structure all throughout the book of Acts. And we see it in this, this particular psalm, this book of Psalms, excuse me. Man, I'm fast forwarding to the book of Acts. I want to get there so badly. But we see that chiastic structure in the Psalms all over the place, and in particularly Psalm 110. And if you remember, the chiastic structure says it begins from the beginning and the end of the passage, and, and it draws to a, a central point in the very middle. In the very middle of this psalm, the very chiastic center of this psalm is verse, verse 4, which tells us that this is the primary emphasis of this psalm, that Jesus is not only king, but he is priest. King David and his readers his hearers who would hear him sing Psalm 110 would have responded to this by looking forward. They would have looked forward to the coming of this priest and to the sacrifice that this priest would make in order to redeem God's people back to himself. But this psalm also reminds us today that Jesus is our priest. He is the only intermediary intermediary between us and God. And he offered an acceptable sacrifice to God for sinners, on behalf of sinners, that was accepted by God. And that sacrifice, that acceptable sacrifice, was his very own life. And even now, as priest, he intercedes for us before the Father. And so, in response to this, I believe our response to this is to learn how to rest in the finished work of our high priest. Learn how to rest in that finished work and how to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Rest in his finished work. Our great high priest, Jesus Christ, completed all of the priestly work that needed to be done in order to make sinners like us righteous before God. No other work needs to be done. He did it all. Now we can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ because of the work of our high priest, Jesus. Now we can rest in his finished work. Hebrews 4.10 says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. What does it mean for us to rest in his finished work? Well, in part, it means to stop thinking like, yeah, I'm very thankful 
before Jesus' sacrifice. But I still feel like I've got to do more in order to earn God's favor or in order to appease his wrath against my sin. Friend, to insist that we've got to do something more, something that Jesus' sacrifice didn't and couldn't effect, is to fall into that error that Paul warned the Galatians about in Galatians 2. In verse 20 of Galatians 2, he begins by saying, I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. But then he says in the next verse, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ, in other words, if we could do anything to make ourselves righteous, then Christ died for no purpose. This high priest offered himself on a tree for no reason. It was a waste if we could make ourselves righteous in any way. But Jesus' death was not a waste, not by a long shot, because, friend, it is categorically and unequivocally impossible for us to remove a single speck of the stain of our own sin on our soul, nor is it possible for us in the least to achieve any measure of righteousness, much less the righteousness that must be ours if we are to be redeemed and reconciled to God. There's no way for us to do this apart from the work of Jesus Christ. What is it? Friend, what is it about us? It makes us where we're, we find it so hard to just rest in the finished work of our high priest. Why do we find it so difficult to just rest in the finished work of Jesus is it a lack of faith in the efficacy of the cross? Or is it just our hubris that, 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 that wants some credit for ourselves? Probably both. The former is an issue of belief. The latter is an issue of pride. Maybe a question here that might help us with this is to ask this of ourselves. What is our motive when we do the things that we know we ought to do as followers of Jesus? Why do we do them? We know that there are lots of things that we ought to do. We speak of them often. Lots of things that the scriptures tell us that we ought to do as followers of Jesus. We ought to be reading and studying our Bible. We ought to be praying we have to be fighting against sin, sharing our faith, encouraging and serving brothers and sisters in Christ, seeking to gather, coming to church, gathering with the saints and worshiping God with the saints, and so on and so forth. The question is, when we do those things, when we seek to obey, we, we are doing those things, why do we do them? What is our motive for doing them. I guess perhaps it's possible that the, the, the 
possible answers to that question could be as numerous and diverse as the number of Christians that there are. But I think also that we could perhaps boil them down into maybe three different categories. That we do those things either out of a lack of faith in the efficacy of the cross, or we do those things out of pride, or we do those things out of worship. It could be out of a lack of faith in the efficacy of the cross that we do those things. And if that is the motive behind doing those things, then we don't think Jesus' high priestly work was enough. We, we, we think we've got to help him somehow. He did a lot. I mean, he died on the cross, but we've got to help him by doing our part. And I got to read the Bible more, and I got to make sure I come to church more often because I got to help him kind of get over the hump in making me acceptable. And that is simply a belief problem. And if that is what it is for you, then seek to grow in your understanding of the efficacy of what happened when Jesus died and rose again from the grave. That when he said it is finished, it is finished. And nothing else needs to be done to make you, as a sinner who trusts in Jesus Christ alone, right with God. You are made right with God because of Jesus' righteousness, not your own. And no amount of right doing and no amount of obedience is going to get you over the hump. You're over the hump, Christian. You don't have to do anything more. Or we could do those things simply out of pride. Because we want others to think of us as spiritual or maybe perhaps just blatantly, we want some of the credit for our own justification. And if this is our motive, then we don't have a belief problem, we have a sin problem. And we need to slay our pride, and we need to repent of our pride and elevate and exalt Jesus as king and priest. You see, friend, our, our aim is that we would do these things that we ought to do out of a heart of worship. That we would do these things out of a desire to see God glorified in our lives. We love Jesus so much, we want Him to be magnified in our lives. And church, God is glorified and Jesus is magnified through and in the happy obedience of his people. And so we do these things to put a smile on Jesus' face and to make him look great in the eyes of the world. And so I'm, my appeal to you here, brothers and sisters, is, is to not nullify the grace of God, either by questioning the efficacy of the cross or by, in our own pride, thinking that we can add to his work. Our great priest, high priest, has finished the work, and no more work needs to be done. Let us rest in the work of our high priest. And, and resting in his finished work allows us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, 
verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Remember where Jesus is seated. At the right hand of the throne of God. He's passed through the heavens. He's sitting in heaven. He's reigning. He's ruling. He's our high priest there. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Drawing near to the throne of grace means humbling ourselves and returning to our Lord. So that we might find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. So we cannot draw near to the throne of grace. Get this. We cannot draw near to the throne of grace without resting in the finished work of Jesus. But when we do draw near to the throne of grace, friend, thankfully, praise God, it helps us to keep on resting in the finished work of Jesus. He helps us to hold fast the confession of our faith and to rest in his finished work until he brings us home. So let us rest and draw near. So David presents to us the coming Messiah as divine king, as forever priest, and now as righteous judge. Look at the closing verses of Psalm 110. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So in these closing verses of this psalm, now we see Yahweh and the Christ, the Messiah, working together. We see their unity as the Godhead. They're working together. Now, instead of Jesus sitting at the right hand of Yahweh, now Yahweh is at the right hand of Jesus, helping him to shatter kings on the day of his wrath and execute judgment among the nations. And so in a New Testament sense, we've moved on now from Hebrews to Revelation. And don't you see here language reminiscent of when we finished our study of Revelation a few months ago? particularly that of the second coming. Like in Revelation 19, verse 15, which reads this from his mouth, from this returning king's mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, in other words, a scepter, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus the king, Jesus the priest, is also Jesus, the righteous and conquering judge. Executing judgment among the nations, that is, making right all wrongs. Bringing perfect and complete and forever justice to all injustices. And in verse 7, he pauses only to refresh himself in the brook, but he will lift up his head, that is, he will have the certain victory. So David's readers would have heard this and they would have responded to this in his day with two responses. First of all, they would be thankful. 
they, they would be very thankful that all the wrongs of their day and all the wrongs of their coming days as they return to this song would one day be made right. What an encouragement that in the midst of suffering and seeing and experiencing all that is wrong in the world around us, that we can be reminded that every wrong will one day be made right, that every sin will be judged, and every injustice will receive perfect and eternal justice. They would be thankful. They would be encouraged by that. But secondly, they would want to make sure that they're ready for this coming judgment. Because, friend, there's only kind of two kinds of people that, that long for and look for complete and eternal justice. Only two kinds of people look forward to that. Either those who do no wrong or those whose wrongs have been atoned for and forgiven so our response to Jesus as the soon returning righteous judge should be similar. First, for those among us who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope, followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, believers in Jesus, our response to this should be threefold. First of all, we are humbled that although we deserve to be recipients of this coming justice, we are spared this judgment by the sovereign grace of God. We, friend, are those whose wrongs have been atoned for and covered over by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are humbled by sovereign grace. Secondly, we are encouraged that one day all wrongs will be righted. Final and complete justice is coming. So don't be undone by the rampant evil that we see in the world that seems to go unchecked. Justice is coming. Be encouraged. And then thirdly, we are compelled to take the gospel to those around us and those around the world who are otherwise headed for a Christless eternity. But if you've not placed your faith in Christ, if you are, maybe you're in church often, maybe you've been baptized, maybe you've been very active, but in your heart, you've never come to the point where you have trusted in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection as your only hope to be rescued from what you and all of us deserve for you there's only one response to this. And seeing this Messiah as the coming righteous judge. And that is to be ready for it. To be ready for it. Because perfect and eternal justice for your sins means eternal punishment. And friend, if that is what awaits you, you don't want justice to come. But it's coming nonetheless. And the only way for you to be ready is to join the ranks of those who by no merit of their own, God has covered over their sins with his son's blood, the blood of the king priest, Jesus. And that can only happen when we turn from our sin 
when we turn from our desire to be our own king, when we turn from our attempts to try to save ourselves and be our own priest before God, when we turn from all of that and trust in Jesus Christ alone as our only hope to be reconciled to God. Friend, be ready. Be ready. Church, David gives us here a beautiful picture of Jesus, that of king. Jesus is king now. Let's live in humble submission to him. David gives us a picture here of Jesus as the priest, the high priest. Let us rest in his finished work as our priest and draw near with confidence because of that to the throne of grace so that we might find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. We see Jesus as the righteous judge. So let us be humbled by sovereign grace, encouraged by coming justice, and compelled to missional faithfulness to take the gospel to the nations so that God might save sinners like he did with us. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful, beautiful picture we have in this Old Testament. Before Jesus was born, before anyone knew his name, there was a promise. There was a, another and divine and yet unseen covenant between you and your son that you would send him and he would die in our place to rescue us. Father, those of us whom you have redeemed from the pit and rescued from eternal justice. We're humbled by that sovereign grace. We are thankful, Father, for the work that you have done on our behalf. Help us to rest in that. Oh, we need to work. These, there are works prepared beforehand that we should walk in, but not to earn your favor not to help you get us over the hump in making us righteous. That's been done through Jesus' obedience. Thank you for that. Help us to rest in that, Father. And Lord, make us faithful to your mission to take this gospel to the nations so that you might redeem from every tribe, tongue, language, and people a church, a people of your own, who will sing worship and glory to the Lamb and Him who sits on the throne forever. Make us useful in your mission to take the gospel to the nations. And may your justice come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.